Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to another installment of the A.J. Bruno Show. Today, I'm privileged to welcome Colonel Walt Cunningham to the show. Throughout his career, he's been a fighter pilot with the U.S. Marine Corps and later a physicist and NASA astronaut who flew on Apollo 7. Hello, sir. It's good to speak to you. Hello there, A.J. How are you doing? All right. Thanks. How are you? Well, I'm getting older. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, well, let's get back uh, to the beginning. Uh, when and how was it that you first decided you wanted to be a fighter pilot and an astronaut? Boy, I tell you, that might be a little hard to pin down, except that during the Second World War, <clears throat> I was in grammar school in Southern California, and they had, uh, you know, P-38s, P-51s, and, you know, bombers flying over, and I got to the point where I, uh, in the class, they, I think I was in the fifth grade, and the airplane would fly over, and the teacher would see me sitting there listening to the sound, and she'd say, what is that? And I'd tell her what the airplane was, just like that. So I'm sure that early in my life I had this desire, not to mention the fact that they had a, a couple pretty good movies back in those days on uh, airplanes. So in any event, uh, I, I uh, wanted to become a fighter pilot, but uh, I, when I started in the military, I uh, couldn't enlist in there. I didn't have two years of college. I had enlisted right out of high school, and I, I did that because I didn't want to get drafted into the Army and go to Korea, so I joined the Navy, eventually went to flight training, took my commission in the Marine Corps, and was right at Korea. <laughs> well, so you originally joined the Navy, but later became a Marine fighter pilot. What was your time flying missions in Korea like? <clears throat> well, we were the last squadron. Uh, it was VMF 513 flying F3D2, which was the first jet all-weather night fighter in the uh, uh, Marine Corps and the Navy. And so we were fortunate to be in those. But when we were out in Korea, we had the the last squadron with a mission until we moved away from there after about seven months moved over to Japan. <clears throat> but the mission was uh, for uh, night and all-weather defense. And occasionally the, the uh, North Koreans would fly a uh, kind of a, a very light, uh, what, I, what I ever thought of was a, as a civilian airplane, might be a biplane, they'd send that down over uh, uh, the South Korea area down there to drop some bombs over the side, but they would only do that when they were in the soup. It was all weather, and uh, it didn't make any difference to our our guys. We got launched anyway because we were on standby uh, all the time. Anytime the weather was bad or it was night, so we'd be out there, had to be airborne in five minutes. But none of us was ever able to get one of those little biplanes because they were going so slow, like maybe 70 knots, maybe 80 knots, and we were in a jet that uh, had to fly through the clouds and the, uh, all of that uh, area down there. We never, ever really got to <laughs> see those <laughs> those airplanes because we were going twice as fast as they were and couldn't spot them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> So after leaving active duty, you studied to become a physicist. What inspired you to pursue a more scientific course? Well, uh, I, I, 
in life, you know, especially in those days, uh, to get it any place, you really had to have a college degree. Uh, in high school, I was a straight-A student, but I joined the Navy to keep from being drafted to go to North Korea, South Korea. Uh, in the Army, I didn't want that. <clears throat> and so here I was over in Korea, and uh, I'll tell you when I decided definitely I was doing okay without a college education at the time. But uh, after I was there for about three or four months, they said the following uh, captains, and we were all second lieutenants, of course, but the following captains are in the zone for major. And they said, because we've promoted too many people in the past, the following majors are in the zone for major. So uh, a couple of weeks later, they did that uh, selection on the promotion, and the captain that we had that was the lousiest in the squadron, none of us second lieutenants could get along with him. He didn't even dress right. He was just a jerk. He made major. Wow. And we had one major there that we all admired and respected because of his good flying ability and all of that. He made captain. So the next wow. day I, I decided uh, I was going to go to college. Wow. That's uh... So anyway, that, it took me a, a year or so after that to transfer to a reserve squadron, <clears throat> so I would be back full time college student and flying nights and weekends. Mm-hmm. So you then went to to work for the Rand Corporation. What was that like, and did that prepare you for your astronaut uh, experience a little bit later? <clears throat> well, none of that really prepared me for astronaut experience, other than just you know, being bright and capable fighter pilot. And I think I was better than just a capable fighter pilot. That's my assessment of it. Mm-hmm. But w- when I uh, was on uh, in the reserve and going to college, I, I had to go start as a freshman out at UCLA. <clears throat> and, of course, uh, I had to have a, uh, be able to afford a living, and I was married at the time and working on all kinds of jobs. I was fortunate when I got to go to work for the Rand Corporation. Because I was working in the uh, in the science area of the Rand Corporation, I'd always been interested in science and math, <clears throat> and so I was uh, a physics major. Uh, got my uh, bachelor's and my master's degree in in physics, and was then in the um, uh, well. I was working on doctorate in physics, and it was actually uh, the project we had was. Uh, fluctuations in the Earth's magnetic field measured with the first triaxial search coil magnetometer that we could get up there. So it was uh, in the science area and uh, to some degree in the, in the, you know, the area of space that uh, I was interested in. Mm-hmm. So you were part of an extremely impressive class of astronauts when you were chosen in Group 3, what was the experience like for you when you were selected and being among this elite group? What was my experience um, when I became an astronaut in that group? <clears throat> that group was, uh, oh, in many ways, we were the best qualified group up to that point uh, because uh, <clears throat> initially it was just really just pilots, and uh, there were seven selected with the Mercury group. And with the Gemini group, there was nine more. And with the um, uh, Apollo group, 
there was 14 of us, so it came to a total of 30. But there was one change in the selection process because you had to be a test pilot uh, for the first two groups. And when it got to the third group, they dropped the requirement to be a test pilot, but you had to be a, a have a very, very nice record as a, a fighter pilot. So about half of our group, or maybe just one less than half, I can't remember for sure, uh, had not been to test pilot schools. And uh, that is what uh, enabled me to make it because I was one of those that had not been to test pilot school. Mm-hmm. Well. I find it interesting they consider you and some others civilian astronauts, even though you were in the military before, but I guess that's because you were retired at the time or not active duty. Well, the thing about it was, you know, it's a civilian space agency, and everybody that they had selected up until our group uh, was military. And with our group, the first time they got – those that were in the reserve were not considered full-time military, but uh, I considered myself military. And uh, there was two of us that they classified as civilians, and the other one had gone out and had given up on any of the military flying. Hmm. So I still maintained my uh, presence. I transferred to a reserve squadron in up in uh, Dallas, I flew there with another nice new airplane, but I flew that for a while. When I got to the point where I couldn't get away from Houston enough to get all the time they wanted me in, I ended up transferring in and becoming the air liaison officer with a local infantry battalion. And uh, that helped save me because I maintained my reserve affiliation. But I felt sorry for that battalion because I didn't know a thing about the ground activities so they let me be the air liaison officer and I did that for a couple of years and uh, it it took me a while but I I still consider myself military hmm. NASA considered me civilian and they they were trying to get more civilians so Rusty Schweikert and I were the two civilians they had at the time so in the long run what that ended up being I'm considering myself military so uh, in my opinion I was the second Marine to fly in space after John Glenn. Uh, I was also the second civilian to fly in space after uh, uh, Armstrong. So uh, it, it it worked out pretty good in the long run. But it was a it was a great career, and I think I was a little bit different in, with my background than a lot of the others. That's interesting. So there are about five years between being chosen and then going into space um, for you. That like, was it primarily just a huge uh, grueling training regime? Well, we were working, all of us were working to get uh, assigned to a flight crew, and uh, you had to have the missions to do that. So when we got there, they were, the uh, Mercury program was over, and they were just starting well, they had developed a spacecraft, but they were just starting to assign the crews to fly on Gemini. And a couple of our guys actually got on uh, on Gemini. Uh, but it was, uh, excuse me, what was the, the question you asked? Oh, sure. I was asking what you did during okay. that period now. Okay. So while the Gemini program was still flying, while they were the, the Gemini program lasted for two two years. 
And uh, when we started out the, the manned space program, uh, we were basically behind the Russians. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Alan Shepard uh, flew that suborbital mission, uh, that was three weeks after the Russians had already sent Yuri Gagarin into orbit. And uh, just one time around and, and back in, and the Russians, they didn't do anything. They were just, uh, they were along for the ride, pretty much. That was it. And under some circumstances, they could do some of the stuff. But even today, they're they're not the same qualified capability that we have. <clears throat> but 10 months after Yuri Gagarin's flight, uh, we launched uh, John Glenn, <clears throat> and he was up there for three orbits. And uh, uh, but then we after the Mercury program we did the Gemini program, <clears throat> and by the time the Gemini program had finished, we had uh, taken over the lead in the space program, and it's still there today in most respects, because uh, after Gemini we had uh, uh, one we had uh, two man crews. Uh, secondly, we developed a rendezvous docking and extravehicular activity. And with all those items, the Russians were trying to uh, stay in competition with us. And in many respects, they've stayed in competition, but they've never really caught up with our operational capability since that time. And those of us in the third group, we worked during the second, maybe the second year of the Gemini programs. We were there working on the systems and uh, helping, you know, supporting the crews. But when it got to the Apollo program, then our guys were really kind of key in some of that assignments. So uh, the first manned Apollo mission was Apollo 7. But people today don't realize how kind of hard it was to get to that because uh, when you started off, you had Apollo 1 and Apollo 2, Apollo 1 was Gus Grissom, Matt White, and Roger Chaffee. Apollo 2 was Wally Schirra, Don Isley, and myself. And we were, it was early enough in the program, we were living at the contractors, North American out there in California, because we hadn't didn't have a simulator. We were trying to get the time in the spacecraft, and we were helping them with, uh, in some respects, small respects on the design, but in the engineering and the reviews and fixing it, <clears throat> with all of that. Well, that slowed down North American because we were doing things that North American hadn't even thought about putting in there, and they were absolutely essential for us. Anyhow, with the schedule slipping and us still racing to beat the Russians to the moon, after about six months there, maybe seven, they canceled Apollo 2. So that was Wally, Don, and I, when they canceled Apollo 2, uh, we moved in as the backup crew for Apollo 1, Gus Grissom and, and you know, Ed White and Roger Chaffee. Yeah. So we were still pushing to get Apollo 2 uh, into the air, uh, really all with the race against the Russians. And so we, for about three months, we were the backup crew on Apollo 1, and in fact, when the Apollo 1 crew, had, they'd had that fire, they died in the fire. At 100% oxygen on the ground. The night before, our crew, the backup crew, we had performed the same checkout, except we had not done it with the hatch closed, so we weren't on 100% oxygen. 
So the next afternoon, we kept waiting around, all uh, actually to fly back together on that Friday. And uh, Gus Ed and Roger spent uh, quite a few hours. I can't remember if it was total four or five hours. At 100% oxygen on the ground, that meant that the oxygen pressure inside that spacecraft was uh, about 16 and a half psi, and that is a lot. So it's really doing a lot with that oxygen. When you go into orbit and you're on 100% oxygen, you're at five psi. So it was a big difference. Hmm. So when the crew uh, was killed in that fire. Uh, oh, must have been two weeks later or so. We got we got assigned to the first crew. So what I've been saying is really it was kind of a difficult way to get there. The public today doesn't even think about all that because we ended up flying that mission. And to this day, Apollo 1, uh, the crew died in the fire. The new first crew was, was us. 21 months later, after doing, I think we did 1,040 changes, something like that. And uh, we launched on what was called Apollo 7 then, but uh, there's nothing tricky in there. It's just each one of the Apollo missions. It was the first manned one. And uh, went 11 days with all those fixes, and today, that's 50 years later, Apollo 7 is still the longest the most ambitious, the most successful first test flight of any new flying machine ever, but the public doesn't really know that. <laughs> oh, no. What you did was really astounding, but it doesn't get the same fanfare, I suppose, as you know, Apollo 11 or something like that. Yeah. Um, so when you finally underwent the mission on Apollo 7, if you could put it into words, I know it's hard for anyone who has an experienced spaceflight to quite understand, but what went through your mind? What was the entire experience like of actually being out there? Well, since we worked so hard through with a couple of different opportunities that fell through, <clears throat> we were just glad to get there. Uh, and we breathed a sigh of relief when we lifted off. Excuse me. We were scheduled for 11 o'clock liftoff, and everything was going so perfect that it actually irritated us when we had to stop and get the pressure up in one of the tanks. Made us two and a half minutes late at liftoff, which was, today wouldn't be a big deal because a lot of them have delays. But I can remember us kind of irritated in there that, what do you mean we're going to be two and a half minutes late? We could have been on time. But uh, it was interesting. Uh, Don Isley and I had not been up before, so that was uh first time for us, but we adjusted very well. We never had any problems with uh, uh, being in zero gravity. <clears throat> we seemed to feel, both of us felt perfectly comfortable. In fact, the second day we were up there, we did a few things to moving ourselves around to see for some reason why we were not getting sick, because about, oh, in those days probably... 25% of the guys had some of this zero-gravity uh, adjustment. might take them 24 hours. Some of them, it took longer. Um, but uh, we never had that. But we did have another problem because we just soon after we got there, Wally Chirac came down with a cold. 
So he's basically taking cold pills, and Molly made made us take cold pills too, but we never had the cold. But, uh, all in all, we got everything done in spite of that. The, the situation of being the first flight was you know fairly unique, but we were able to get everything done. In fact, they added during that mission things were going well enough. They added another four mission objectives, and. Uh, I think we two of those. I don't think we got done. So, but we ended up classified as one hundred and one percent successful. Wow. So all the tests you underwent there were they kind of routine and monotonous, or did you find them all interesting? The tests that we went through, or that we subjected the equipment to, uh, that you subjected the equipment to. <clears throat> okay. Well, uh, basically, it was for the operations. And testing it in many cases at kind of the limits of it to make sure that we had the ranges that we thought we needed on on a lot of that equipment. And um, it was surprisingly good. And that was because, in my opinion, it was because the 21 months after the fire on the pad, we had devoted everything we could to get the equipment better. And the contractor and NASA were both, uh, <clears throat> they were so uh, wrapped up in trying to be a success that they were willing to let us make changes and improvements that before that fire, we weren't able to get them to accept. Sure. One thing I found interesting, um, supposedly they went out of their way to make the food more enjoyable for you, but... None of your crew uh, thought it was particularly good. Uh, was that true, or none of our crew thought what thought the food was particularly good? Oh, well, <laughs> I can't say that we held it any worse than any other crew, but no. we, we we were t- testing that food for about oh three months before we launched, <clears throat> and uh, what we didn't really take into account. I can't remember why we weren't so aware of that, but. <clears throat> They were doing experiments uh, involving that food, and we had our uh, each one of us had our separate kind of recipe that we had settled on from trying from trying out what was available, and uh, we had a recipe or not a recipe really a menu that for three days, and then on the fourth day we went back and you went back and started the same uh, menu over again, and. Uh, I guess it was probably by, oh, I bet it wasn't even more than four or five days later, we uh, started trading things around you know, between us. Uh, some things some guys liked and some other guys did not like. And uh, when we got back, we found out that we had, that's one of the experiments that we had not done well because they hadn't expected us to be changing, changing the food around, changing the memo, the, the menus <laughs> around on that. Uh, and we had, oh, we had one really very interesting <clears throat> emergency on that. The, uh, about the, I don't know, maybe about the third or fourth day. <clears throat> I think it was, I think I was the one that was uh, on the uh, chocolate pudding. This was our dessert. Uh, those menus were set up with, I think, 2,100 or 2,200 calories a day for each of us if we ate everything, which we got to where we couldn't. But that uh, that uh, chocolate uh, pudding, 
that bag split and couldn't find anything. You know, it was, we didn't want that floating around. <laughs> and Wally suggested we put it in our uh, one of our uh, uh, urine bags <laughs> that we had there. So we put it in there, put it away, never thought anything more about it. But when we got back on the ground <clears throat> and they were starting to do the results of the various menus that we had, and they could, and there was one thing missing, and that was that one chocolate pudding, and we didn't know what had happened to it, and then all of a sudden, one of us remembered and told him, said, oh, that's in one of those urine uh, bags, yeah. one of those fecal bags. So the lady that was doing that test, uh, oh, it must be four or five days later, she came by the office, and she said that she had to open every one of those bags because it was the last bag that she got to that she found the pudding instead of the uh, bowel movement. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So <clears throat> there, uh, there was supposedly some tension between the flight crew and mission control during this mission, uh, which may have led to the lack of future assignments um, for some of you. What did you make of this then and, and now looking back on it? Well, I just got through. Somebody pointed out to me uh, that there was some uh, r- uh, write-up on one of the someplace on the TV, excuse not TV, on my on the internet here, on one of the bios that's got that in there. A part of it, you might say, is correct, but most of it, the way it's put there, so there was a paragraph that I read, was not uh, the ground. Uh, in mission control, they did get irritated, but it wasn't because of uh, of just that. It was because of the attitude that uh, Wally had. And uh, for example, Wally got a cold, and the very first day we were in orbit, he started taking cold pills. He was a Navy captain, and his dad had been an admiral, and his grandfather had been an admiral. And in Wally's mind. And he pushed this with the ground that uh, the commander of the sh- of the ship, uh, if there's even if there's an outranked people that come on board, uh, the commander of the ship is still the commander of the ship. So when he started doing some things there, they got kind of a hassle with the ground because we were there uh, with the same crew. Uh, I can I know I never participated in any of that because uh, I I didn't like what was going on. I was a Marine. <laughs> you can always tell a Marine, but not much. But uh, uh, that did develop a, a negative attitude uh, principally against Wally, but it had its fallout too because of the ground control. They were, they were desperate on everything being successful. But I went to what uh, Isley stayed in the program. Wally had told them he was going to be leaving a year and a half before but because we finally got that, that first mission he inherited, uh, he, he didn't leave until right after we got back. So he didn't really care about it. Uh, Isley was there on Apollo backup crew for uh, months after that. I was put in charge of the Skylab branch of the astronaut office, and I was scheduled to fly the uh, uh, the first uh, Sky, Skylab uh, mission if it had gone when they expected, but it didn't. It drifted on, and I ended up not being in that position. Pete Conrad mm-hmm. ended up in that position and flying it. Mm-hmm. 
So you did play an important management role in developing Skylab, though. Um, what exactly was your task, and what were the most important lessons learned from Skylab? Well, <clears throat> I'd say possibly my biggest contribution to NASA during my eight years there was the two years that I was uh, in charge of Skylab, and that was because until that happened in the past, the astronauts had not had a significant enough input on developing the Skylab and the uh, the spacecraft was the same spacecraft we had before. Okay. But, we can go beyond uh, that, yeah. Yeah. But when uh, that came, uh, when I was on that, we started fixing things, and uh, it involved some some fights with uh, those people who had been working on Skylab for a couple of years but had not in- included the crew input. So uh, we really made the Skylab uh, – what it turned out to be, I think. I think we created a hell of a lot of the changes that went that went on there for it. And uh, I would have liked to have flown a Skylab mission, but uh, after I moved from a primary to backup crew, I didn't want to wait around that no. period of time. Hmm. So you were part of the study panel in 1971 to decide on the next major program for NASA. Uh, could we have really made it to Mars by 1984? And how different do you think these last decades would have been had this program been chosen? Well, I don't recall that I was on the panel. I may have had an input into it back then, but I don't recall that I was actually on the panel. But I was too busy working on Skylab. Mm. But they're talking about going to Mars in 1984, even at the time. Those of us that were astronauts knew that was an absolutely ridiculous uh, time to talk about doing it. And uh, even today, they've got a ridiculous schedule on it. Uh, What's his name? Uh, Elon Musk, he's talking about going there in uh, 2024. Uh, Absolutely nonsense. We can end up flying by, maybe, but even that's going to be a lot of trouble. It's going to take us... If we commit to it today, and we're not committed yet, if we committed to it today, it would still be several decades, uh, this is my opinion, before we'd end up doing that. Yeah. No, I can't imagine they'd get there in a few years. And um, But I think it's a shame that there's a big gap between going to the moon and going to Mars. Um, it feels like it should have been closer together. Yeah. Well, I'm not uh, – my own thought is I'm not convinced even that there's a whole lot to be gained by going to Mars. I think we'll go there anyway because the best thing that will happen is we'll be pushing back the next frontier. That's what happened when we went to the moon. Uh, we moved the frontier out away from the Earth, and, you know, out into space. The technology that was developed to do that is still paying off for us years later, 50 years later. Mm-hmm. And there will come a time when uh, we will want to we'll take that challenge of going to Mars and uh, what's developed to do it will have a, a lot of uh, impact in other areas as well. So uh, that's what what will do that in those days. So if if you were making the decisions today for how best to get the space program focused on what the firm goals and objectives should be moving forward, what would your agenda and priorities be? 
Uh, you know, well, I could never have that authority, and there's a variety of different ideas that's out there. My personal opinion is that uh, uh, we don't be sitting here talking about going to Mars and, and landing on it and trying to come back with, with all that requires on it. Uh, there's a lot to be developed. I would be uh, uh, going to uh, returning to the moon, uh, developing a capability to uh, have our crew people live on the moon for a period of time that will help us be practical for the time that we would have to stay on Mars if we went there. I would not be focusing much on Mars for some time. And uh, uh, you know, the reason being is they've had unmanned exploration of Mars going on for some time now. And it's been amazingly good, if you ask me. They know so much more about Mars uh, on the surface than we knew about the moon before we went to the moon. So I would be relying on the unmanned exploration of Mars for a while, some decades, and I'd be doing our work focusing on the ability to establish uh, bases and things like that. I would be doing that on the moon. So our last few questions here. I I read something where you uh, spoke very favorably of Werner von Braun. I'm curious, what were your interactions with him like, and was there anyone more instrumental to the space program despite the controversy associated with him? Well, I never could understand. I knew the history, you know, where Werner von came from and all of that, but I could not understand uh, a lot of controversy because he he was a really fine manager and I'll never forget that we our first briefing our crew our our selection of 14 of us and we were up there at Huntsville Alabama and uh, went to the uh, conference room and here was Werner sitting at the end and had some of his other managers sitting around and we sat down at that conference table and I think that uh Almost none of the questions or anything else that ever came up, and some of them pretty technical, uh, none of them were answered by anybody but Werner. And Werner was a he was a fine man also. I, I got to know him for some years, and uh, we were fortunate to have Werner von Braun. So to uh, pivot a little bit here. Um, I also saw the climate change op-ed you wrote for the Houston Chronicle a number of years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it makes a, a pretty strong argument. Having said that, why do you think we're in a situation where we're told it's an undeniable consensus and anyone who questions it is condemned outright? It's a question about, uh, you know, is it condemned to take a position like I have? or you, I, right. I didn't... Um, Yeah, anyone who questions the science behind claiming that there's massive man-made climate change, um, you know, that carbon is causing it. Um, basically, if you say that, you're ostracized. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm at a stage where I don't, uh, I don't care what they try to do about that. I always stick with science. I've worked in and out of uh, uh, climate stuff. You know, well, I haven't really worked in it, but I've been had the opinion about it for years. Uh, while we were still at NASA, Rusty and I and one other person down there, we formed an organization to uh, looking at the atmosphere. It had nothing to do with this, this CO2 effect. 
And uh, I've written a couple of articles in the past, but when it got to the point where our, our culture and our society has changed, the people at large do not routinely go look at the data themselves. And when I'm talking about this, there's only one thing that I really talk about. I really talk about do you do you really think that humans are controlling our temperature? And that's the most obvious answer in the world is that we are not controlling the temperature. So then I go through the discussion and we talk about, you know, why. Do you know how much uh, atmosphere that we humans, excuse me, how much uh, carbon dioxide that we put out? Which is like 0.0002, some small percentage. Well, if you look at the uh, at the, an atmosphere, it is point. 0.001% of the atmosphere is human-controlled. Hmm. Now, it, it, it's um, there's more CO2 than that, but we're, we don't have anything to do about it. Hmm. And when you look at that, to think that we're controlling the temperature of our planet is, is well, it, it takes a total uh, uh, lack of intelligence to just accept that. But when I'm talking about it, the only thing I'm really talking about is telling people to go look at the data themselves. Mm-hmm. Quit believing the media. Quit believing the politicians. Quit believing these people who have never personally determined uh, this. They've accepted what they've been told. And that's a weakness in our culture and our society that I don't know. Yeah, I would suspect eventually we'll probably get past that, but it's right now it's all every place. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So finally, you've written a book about your experiences uh, called The All-American Boys, as well as contributed to In the Shadow of the Moon. What can you tell us about those? The, the All-American Boys? Yes. Well, my my book, I wrote that mm, was 40 years ago, actually a little more than that, because it took me four years. It took me three years to write it. Uh, sometimes I see I had a friend that helped me doing some review for it until I I got rid of my friend after about (laughs) half the chapters but uh, I said I'd put his name on so now they think of him as being uh, I guess the author uh, on my stuff but it was not I was the guy that did the book and I that was in the 70s it took me three years McMillan then uh, Absorbed about another year before we got it out, and uh, I helped them promote it for maybe a month, and then went on doing all my regular work. Never thought about it until about, oh, 10 years ago. Uh, actually, 2002 or three, I went through, updated that a little bit, and added three or four chapters talking about the relationship uh, with the Russians, because to this day, we still have a better operation for space than the Russians do, but we're totally dependent on the Russians. <clears throat> Costs us, you know, $80 million for everybody we send up and back to the space station up there. But the book is, uh, uh, it's loved growingly by all the time. Uh, and there's other books out there. A couple of them that's pretty good, too. Uh, you know, uh, Mike Collins' book, Carrying the Fire, uh, they a lot of people frequently will compare those two, and they don't go at things the same way. Uh, he uh, his book I think is quite interesting. Uh, mine is considered a little more candid. I think he was a little smarter about not commenting about some of the personal relationships and things like that. But it's uh, his book's excellent, excellent too. 
And I do push the All American Voice when I get a chance because it's it's still selling. I've done my own audio book on it. That took me four months to get that one done. <laughs> so uh, I recommend the All American Voice to anybody. No, that's great. So I have a final question here. I'm curious, was there one person in the space agency that was really the most influential to you? Someone who, you know, despite, I know in your book you talk about the flaws of, of everyone involved, but was there one person who you kind of put up on a pedestal as someone you admired and looked to? Well, who did I admire the most? Well, it required different capability and different aspects of the program, but some people really had it. Excuse me. Uh, I'm busy trying to keep think of his name right now. That, that came in and took over Skylab uh, when I, I'd been running for two years. Pete Conrad. He was one of the most capable people that you could imagine. Uh, Tom Stafford's still alive, and Tom was quite capable. Uh, well, I'd be hard time hard time to pick out any particular one because we had a number that were doing very good. Uh, uh, Neil Armstrong was he was very very capable guy, but he was not he was really active a lot socially or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But he did, he knew how to get things done. I remember after he ejected on the that little training landing machine he did before uh, Apollo 11 flew and uh, uh, I heard about it my office was right next door to Neil's I walked in his uh, office right next door and Neil was already there it was an hour before that had happened he's sitting there going through his work writing and what have you (laughs) no big deal to him at all (laughs) he's a very capable guy wow well uh I wanted to thank you again for coming on. It's been um, a real honor to speak to you, and it's been incredibly interesting hearing everything I had to say. Well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, I hope some people get something positive out of it, but uh, glad to do it. I hope so, too. Thanks, and uh, take care. Okay, thank you very much. That was Colonel Walt Cunningham. Um, It was wonderful having him on the show. Uh, So until next time, uh, I'm signing off for now. This has been A.J. Bruno for the A.J. Bruno Show. We'll be back with another episode next week. It'll be hard to match this one, but we will be back then, and I'll see you then. Thanks again.